Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Bright Integrity Press. Hi, this is Publishing Lane and I'm Margie Lane Klubine. Again tonight, uh, uh, tonight I'm just, I'm so excited to be here with you all, but we're missing the brilliance of our wonderful Faye Lamb. Oh, and I'm so missing her. However, we are going to wrap up our novel skeleton tonight. And I can't believe I just said that. See, my little script here, well, it's kind of a guide, and it says, we're on a downhill roll with our writing bones, but no. I had to wrap up the skeleton, conjuring all sorts of images of creepy mummies. Sorry about that. But if you've tuned in these last few months, then you've seen how our skeleton works. Now, I could tell you for a planner, these bones are solid gold. And now I have pictures of golden bones in my head. Well, it's better than the mummy I mentioned before. But seriously, these will set up a story easily. To start a new book, I use the Scrivener software. But I've also used a simple spreadsheet like an Excel spreadsheet and even a physical storyboard with sticky notes. I have to tell you, I actually found an old storyboard from several years ago in the back of my daughter's closet. It is amazing how close to the bones that story actually was. And what was even more amazing is how much it resembled the Scrivener programs that I end up using now, all the files that I use. In Scrivener, it's really easy, and I don't sell Scrivener, so none of this is coming back to me, And but I got to tell you, I love this program, this software. It's from Literature and Latte, uh, literatureandlatte.com, I think. Um, if you've never used it, you really need to have a trial of it. It is so easy to organize anything. And I mean, seriously, I even organize um, my, my financial information uh, for, for my company. I, or, that's what I use to organize, to put in all the different, when I say financial things, I'm just talking about anytime I go on the toll road or anytime I, I write everything in there by month so that it's so organized and so easy to pull out when it's time to do taxes. And that season rolls around far too quickly, I'm just saying. So anyway, in scripture, in Scrivener, I end up opening a digital file for each bone. Um, and if you're using an Excel sheet, you know, that would be a new worksheet. You open up the big file and then you have the little tabs at the bottom. Each one is its own little worksheet. So there are nine bones in all. I open nine digital files. And then for each bone, I open another little folder for all of the different sections in it. Now, each bone can have different number of sections in it. The sections don't always set day in the same place, but the bones all do. That's the beauty of this. The bones stay all in the same place and just the sections move around. So it's just a case of picking up the folder for each section and moving it where I want it. Then in each folder, I jot down a sentence or two of what happens on an index card in the folder. Um, 
the index cards are part of the program when you open a file. And so I open a file in the folder and I jot what happens in that particular on that particular section of the story on the index file. Um, for a spreadsheet, each new line is an index card, quote unquote, so that you could then write a couple of sentences of what happens in that particular section. Um, on my storyboard, I actually used index files. I actually used our index cards. I actually used sticky notes all over it. In fact, I even did them in different colors. So the thing that makes it work is, like I said, the bones are always going to stay in place. So if you use a storyboard, your bones will stay in place. If you use a um, an Excel file, each different worksheet is going to be a different bone, and they're going to stay in place. It's just the sections within the bones that'll change around. So you don't have to pull something from the end of the story and put it at the beginning of the story. That gets so confusing and makes so many terrible changes. So as I'm laying out the story, the skeleton, like I said, remains in place. The details are the only things that get adjusted within the bones themselves and not rearranging the whole story. Then once I get the story set, I can start writing a scene at a time just using the index cards. Now my story as I go, I have to confess, it always changes just a little bit as I write. You know, characters do speak. But even if the plan alters slightly, the main bones, like I said, are going to stay the same. The sections might wiggle around just a little bit. You know, this is September, not October, but I swear I'm picturing a little, picturing a little wiggly skeleton at this point. I got to get these pictures out of my head. Okay, so one other thing, those index cards that I used to lay out my story, this is a bonus if you're using Scrivener. Those little index cards with just a little bit of rewriting becomes your synopsis. I love that. When the baby is done, it is perfect for synopsis, and it just can be sent off to anyone that you need to send a synopsis to, an agent or a publisher. Now, I know that not everyone is the planner that I am. Yes, I know. I have three calendars and a number of lists. In fact, I probably keep at least three grocery lists every week and two menu planners. I'm, I'm way over planned, but that's because writing it all down helps me remember it. And so I just write it down a lot. So I remember it. It wasn't, I didn't have to write it down so often when I was younger, but now that I'm a little older, I have to write it down a lot to try and remember. But for pantsers, our skeleton is also important. It's also helpful. Faye has talked about this because she is so the pantser, but she was talking about the fact that she actually has this very same outline, this very same skeleton in her head as she's writing. She just doesn't really think about it, and she doesn't write it down. But it still comes out the same way. It's still, in, it's still there in her head. So as a pantser, the best way to use this story skeleton is to, well, to know it, but that when you get stuck and your characters stop, stop talking, um, when your story kind of fizzles or you paint yourself into a corner, you can look at where you are in the skeleton Use the novel skeleton, use the writing bones, and get yourself back on track. Sort of map out where you've been 
to figure out where to go from here. That doesn't mean you have to map it out ahead of time. I have several friends that are pants or riders. They write by the seat of their pants is what that means. And oh my gosh, one of them, Patty, uh, Patricia Pack, Jack Carroll, she's an awesome writer, prolific. She's written so many books and she's so good at it. But she cannot use an outline. She does not. She will not use an outline. Um, it, it kills the story for her. I totally get that. But even for a pantser like Patty, if you get lost in your story, figuring out where you are can help you get started again, stir your, stir your ideas and your inspiration up again to keep moving forward. Okay, so tonight, here we are. We have gone through months of our story skeleton, and we have analyzed this puppy upside down and backwards. Tonight, we're going through the last three bones. Now, the reason we're going through three of them is because the last two are actually a little short. Um, short bones. Oh, they're actually a little short. Um, the, the one we're going to go through first has a lot of sections to it, um, not as many as some of the ones that we've gone through before, but the final two bones only have just four sections between them. I think that's right, if I'm counting correctly. So we're going to move forward. But before we can move forward, let's take a look at what we're building on just from last month. I'm not going to go through all the bones right now, but just, just from last month, our last bone um, – was the calamity bone. We had calamity in bone number seven. During this period, everything pretty much spirals out of control. Um, now, throughout these last few months, we've been analyzing three pretty popular movies, and we want to get back to them again tonight. We've been looking at Princess Bride and Star Wars and Beauty and the Beast. So from last month in Prince in Princess Bride, Buttercup has realized that the prince she is marrying is a jerk, and he's planning on having her murdered. Um, she doesn't, I don't think she realizes that he's having her murdered, but he is. The reader knows that, or the watcher knows that. Meanwhile, he's already killed her true love, Wesley. And so that's where everything is spiraled out of control. Um, in the movie Beauty and the Beast, Belle has left the castle. Beast gave her the choice and she left to go help her father. That seals the doom of him and also of all the servants who are there. What's worse is she tells the townspeople that there really is a beast because they've thought that her father's crazy. So in order to prove that he's not crazy, she shows them, she proves to them that the beast is real and they panic. And when they panic, they go to invade the castle and kill the beast. Again, spiraling out of control. And then lastly in Star Wars, the Death Star has finally arrived at the Rebel base. And the Death Star, the, the people, the leaders of, uh, of the Empire plan to destroy the moon where the Rebel, Rebel base resides as soon as the planet gets out of the way. The planet's in the way. The rebels have almost nothing to defend themselves, just a few little X-wing starfighters against the huge Death Star, and they have little chance of success. And on top of all that, Han Solo flat out abandons them and flies off because he doesn't think they have a chance either. So the very last part of the Calamity Bone um, bone number seven, there's a tiny upswing. 
just a tiny hope that flickers before all is surely lost. In Star Wars, uh, uh, Luke is getting in his his uh, aircraft and his starfighter, and he hears Ben Kenobi's voice telling him that the Force will be with him. In Beauty and the Beast, the servants, the 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 townspeople are attacking the castle while the servants begin attacking the townspeople and they're winning the battle. It's just a tiny little upswing. And then in the princess bride, a miracle happens. Inigo and Fezzik find Wesley dead, but they take him to miracle max and miracle max makes a potion to make him come back from the almost dead. Probably my favorite scene in the movie. So from that upswing, we're going to fall headfirst into disaster. Now, <clears throat> this, uh, the seventh bone that I've talked about, the calamity, it also coincides with the dark moment or the black moment that the character will fall into when they recognize the lie that they've believed is indeed a lie. Um, but to get to that point, they have to get very broken. The first section of this bone is called the disaster. By the way, I need to tell you, the bone is uh, the calamity. Let's see, the very last, let's see, where was I? The, the bone, I think, is called the um, disaster bone. And so from that, we have to get very broken. So the little flicker of hope from the upswing is thoroughly doused for the reader during this section. In Star Wars, the Empire leaders have been taking flack from the X-Wing fighters, okay? They have mosquitoes buzzing around, basically. But these little one-man ships are so small, they can't track them down fast enough to shoot them with the Death Star defenses. So they end up sending out their TIE, fire, TIE fighters in response. And those TIE fighters began picking off the X-Wings left and right. Even Luke Skywalker gets hit. I mean, he's not destroyed. In fact, R2-D2 is riding piggyback on his um, starfighter and fixes it for him. But he even gets hit by these TIE fighters. So even though they had, I mean, they're about to get totally destroyed by the Death Star. But even the TIE, the the starfighters aren't going to be able to survive because the TIE fighters are just picking them off in droves. And then in the Princess Bride... Uh, that has the same rock-bottom moment. All along, Buttercup is sure that true love will prevail. She is positive that Wesley will save her. She doesn't know that he's dead. And she goes through to the wedding certain that he will come, certain that he will get there before she's married. She refuses to agree to the vows. But vows, I'm sorry, I said vowels, that just came out that way. She refuses to agree to the wedding vows. But then the wedding is cut short, and they just proclaim her married. She's devastated. She doesn't have the chance to protest, and Wesley never came. So as a result, she decides to kill herself so that she doesn't have to be married to the prince. Kind of drastic, but... The Beast didn't fare much better. He's not exactly killing himself, but in Beauty and the Beast, he's refusing to fight. He's lost his will to live because Belle left him. Not only did she leave him, but from his point of view, she ended up sending the townspeople to attack. He doesn't believe she'll ever return. And 
To make matters worse, Gaston has been away from the fighting downstairs and gone in search of the beast. He is the ultimate hunter, and he wants to claim his prize. He finds the beast, and he taunts him about actually falling in love with Belle. He laughs at him, and then, adding insult to injury, he actually shoots him. You know, murder is kind of an extreme measure, too, now that I think about it. And these fairy tales, well, they are fairy tales. It's amazing of how extreme our fairy tales get. But our next section poises the story on a precarious cliff. This is the crisis of the story, the high point, like a balancing stone. A tiny weight either way can create a devastating ending to the story, like with Beauty and the Beast. Here, the beast was just shot. Now, he wasn't killed, but not really caring enough to live either way. Then Belle comes back into the picture. She has arrived, and he catches sight of her, giving him the motivation he needs to fight back. Now, Gaston still has the upper hand. He has the gun, and he has the beast in his sights. So this is a crisis in the story, a balancing stone. It's certainly getting to the climax. Now, we're not there yet, though it seems like it. The tension from here until the final bone needs to stay amped up big time. Like in Star Wars, not only do the Empire leaders send out the TIE fighters to take out the X-Wings of the Rebel Force, but Darth Vader also decides to join them. As the X-Wings start uh, they start runs on the target of the Death Star. Remember, the X-Wings have figured out where the weak point is on the Death Star, and they're taking runs on it. But Darth Vader comes down with his little wingmen and shoots them out of the sky like unwary fish in a barrel. They have no place to go in this narrow trench where they're flying, and there's little de- defense against Darth Vader anyway. <clears throat> Meanwhile, The rebel base is coming quickly into the firing field of the Death Star. All is about to be lost there. The Princess Bride also shows no uh, little hope. I was going to say no hope, but it really isn't no hope. It's actually little hope. There's a little bit there, but very little. The trio, and this is Inigo and Fezzik, who were the two of the original kidnappers, and they've got Wesley. And they have shown up at the castle. And they're hiding in order to get an idea of what the situation is. Unfortunately, the situation is that the castle has doubled or tripled the guards that they were expecting. And though Wesley is mentally more with it, he's not quite all there. And he can't move at all. They're having to carry him around with his legs and arms just hanging out from him. That brings us to the final section of this bone. Here we are poised on this cliff, like a ballerina on point. We're going to have to have a plot pivot. Everything is negative. There's very little hope. And suddenly, everything turns around unexpectedly to give us the swing we need for the final battle in the next bone. So we're going to start with the Princess Bride. Using their wits, the trio is able to not only get past the outside guards, they scatter in fear. Something to do with a flaming dread pirate, Roberts, who lives even though he's on fire. It's all a little sketchy, 
but it works to get them through the door. And then in Beauty and the Beast, there's also kind of a sigh of relief moment. Belle hits Gaston's arm. He is sitting there aiming at Beast, about to shoot him dead. And Belle hits his arm or pulls on his ankle or grabs his coat or something like that. And it totally ruins his shot. The Beast attacks Gaston. And he makes pretty quick work of him, holding him over the edge of a parapet or a precipice. Gaston begs for mercy. And Beast, having learned compassion through this time period, lets him live. He demands that he leave. And then he turns his back on Gaston and smiles at Belle. I mean, it is a breath. It is a sigh of relief moment. That's the good part. In Star Wars, this plot pivot really isn't a plot pivot as much as it's a scene change. There is a little bit of a hope, though. See, the scene changes from where the X-Wings are getting picked off one by one to inside the, the Death Star. The Empire leaders are sitting there chatting. They're watching a brilliant show of their TIE fighters destroying the Alliance Rebel Force. And one of the leaders or one of the underlings mentions that there's a slight danger to the Death Star, a ridiculously low chance. There actually is a tiny risk. Well, the leaders scoff at that possibility, and they go back to enjoying the show. <clears throat> so it's not exactly a, a sigh of relief, but it does foreshadow the it does foreshadow the the opportunity, the hope that this might end well after all. And thus this bone ends, and it only has three sections, but it's crucial to the main character. Um, his the main character's arc has to hit rock bottom in order to achieve his or her aha moment. Um, this is kind of like an epiphany. In, in Beauty and the Beast, the Beast has lost his will to live. Um, he believes that Belle won't return at all, and then she does, showing him the falseness of the lie that he believed. In Princess Bride, I mean, he. before I go to Princess Bride, let me tell you, he believed that he was unlovable at this point. He has learned compassion, but he doesn't believe, he's learned to love her, but he doesn't believe that she could ever love him. And then she comes back, and suddenly he believes that this is all a lie, um, and that she really does maybe care for him. Um, now moving on to the Princess Bride, it's actually Buttercup who has lost faith in true love. At the very beginning of the mo movie, she loses that faith when she learns that Wesley's died. And that at about midpoint in the movie, they're able to make it through the fire swamp. And her hope is restored, or at least rekindled. But it's dashed again when Wesley doesn't show up before her marriage was finalized. Um, in Star Wars, the rebels have fought valiantly. Luke starts realizing this is a losing battle. The Alliance really had no chance against the Empire in the first place. So they have to reach the rock bottom moment um, in 
Beauty and the Beast, they're actually starting to come up from that with the Epiphany. The Epiphany hasn't happened yet for um, Princess Bride or for Star Wars, but it will. The main characters have to reach this point during the pit of despair so they can rebuild their hope for the apex of the story. Um, even though in The Princess Bride and in Star Wars they haven't reached their epiphany, even though they haven't, they still have a, 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 a purpose, a movement forward. <laughs> even though for Princess Bride, all she's going to do is kill herself. Um, in Star Wars, Luke is going to continue to fight, even though he doesn't believe there's much of a chance. But uh, we're going to get to the apex of the story with this one. They're going to rebuild their hope in From the Pit of Despair. That was what the title of this phone was. It wasn't disaster. It was the Pit of Despair. It It is total spiraling downward. Um, we're going to rebuild it for our apex. And an apex is exactly what the eighth bone is about. It, think of it as a final battle. But in honor of the Princess Bride, I like to call it the storming the castle bone. If you remember Mad Miracle Max, where he says, have fun storming the castle. I just love that line. And so I, I named this storming the castle bone, but it is like a final battle. It is the most exciting part. It is the apex or the climax of your story. Storming the castle is literally what they do in The Princess Bride. Well, now that I think about it, they do the same thing in Star Wars, too, only it's not a castle. It's the Death Star, but it's close enough. The first section of this bone is called the Final Stand, and they're at this. Now, I compare it to the Alamo, the real thing, not the movie. I'm from Texas. Alamo is a big thing down here, and I was a fourth-grade teacher for a long time. We taught Texas history. So legend has it in the Alamo that Colonel William Barrett Buck Travis drew a line in the dirt. And yes, that's probably one of the places where we get the idiom of drawing a line in the sand. Um, who knows if that was the only one. But he explained that anyone staying in the Alamo would likely die, but hoped that it would give the Texian army time to mount a new attack. Now, I am saying that correctly. It is Texian because back then it was the, the people who lived in Texas who were fighting against the Mexicans. And when they moved Texas, it was Mexican land. And so instead of calling themselves Mexican, because they, they weren't, they were from all kinds of countries, they called themselves Texian. And so there was an I in it. Now we've dropped the I, so we're just Texan. But back then, it was the Texian army. And they want to, yeah, I know. I told you I was a fourth grade teacher. I can't help it. It just comes out. So anyway, they told... Um, uh, Buck Travis told the Texian army that, or hoped that it would give the Texian army enough time to mount a new attack from somewhere else. But he told them that anyone staying would likely die. They expected to be killed. Um, Santa Ana was his army was just huge, and it was slowly but surely making its way uh, close to the Alamo. And this is before the troops were thoroughly surrounded by Santa Ana, so they could still escape. <clears throat> In fact, they sent out several messengers to try and ask for other helpers. And I don't know if you remember, but the the um, the volunteers from was it is it it's Tennessee volunteers, I think Tennessee or is it Kentucky? Oh, it's escaping me. 
I think it's the Tennessee Volunteers, but they came at that point. I think there were 18 of them that came all the way from there just to fight with the Texian army. Um, But in this situation, not one person crossed the line. So going back to what I was saying, this is the final stand. Tragic in the history of Texas, it did work in that Remember the Alamo became a rallying, rallying cry for the remainder of the Texan, Texian army. Um, that and Remember Goliad was the final stand, the climax of the story, the ultimate victory or defeat. In this case, the final stand is the climax. The ultimate victory or defeat, depending on the Romeo, uh, depending on the story. I said Romeo because I'm looking ahead at my notes. Um, And I look at Romeo and Juliet as an example of ultimate defeat. This time it was thrown around upside down and backwards. See, before this, in The Princess Bride, Star Wars, and in um, Beauty and the Beast, there's something negative that's going on. And this brings you ultimate defeat on what our ultimate victory in this section of what you expected was going to be defeat. Romeo and Juliet is totally different. It was on the cusp of their victory that they ended up having their suicide scene. And their suicide scene is the climax of the story. But it was right when they were about to succeed. They just didn't know it. Um, It was definitely, in this case, a defeat when a victory was expected. But like I said, for our three movies, a defeat is expected, and they end up having victories, happier endings. Um, But we have to get past the climax first. And the last stand isn't quite there. It's more the setup for that final failure in a novel with a happy ending. Um, The last stand in Romeo and Juliet is a little more positive, a plan to help them live happily ever after. And then it turns negative. But let's just stick with our movies. So Beauty and the Beast probably has the easiest setup. Uh, Beast just let Gaston live. But when he turned his back... Gaston showed the depths of his cowardice by shooting him. The fact that the walkway beneath Gaston crumbles and he falls to his death doesn't change the damage done. Beast is dying. Ultimate failure. The same can be said with the Princess Bride. Anigo has found the six-finger man that he was looking for. And he fights with him, but he becomes badly wounded. He ultimately defeats the general, but he's near death, and he can't help anymore at all. Fezik has gone. He went to get the horses to make their, their escape. So this leaves Wesley alone to explain things to Buttercup. Now, she's overjoyed to find him, but her thrill is cut short when the prince arrives. He's not expecting to find Wesley. He thought he was dead after he had, gotten, he had tortured him. I think he was going to use the attack to kill Buttercup and claim that the nearby kingdom had done it. But Wesley is lying there on his bed, on Buttercup's bed when the prince arrives. He's drawn his sword, and Wesley is completely paralyzed still. I mean, it's riveting, but it's also desperate, and all the prince has to do is just stab him. There's nothing that can be done about it. And then in Star Wars, the rebel forces are crumbling. Trio after trio of X-Wing fighters attempt to shoot down the Death Star, but they fail. Darth Vader picks them off, or they just flat out fail, even if they get to the end of it. 
Luke begins his run with his friend from Tatooine on one side and another fighter on the other side. And they are his protection over his six. You know, you say you'll watch your six. Um, they're his protection over his back end. And as before, Darth Vader descends behind them. Now, the first wingman is hit, and he has to back off. He can't do any help. He can't help anymore. Then Luke's friend is killed, and Luke is left alone to take the shot. So he readies the computer to help him keep his firing on the target. And just before he shoots, he hears Ben's voice again telling him to use the force. So he shuts off his computer to take the shot without its help. Now, there are a couple of things that happen with this. First, Vader recognizes that the force is strong with him. Second, all the people back at the rebel base can see that he's turned off his computer. And they think that all hope is gone. They think something's wrong with him. Vader, in, in fact, attempts to shoot him down, but he only actually hits R2-D2. Now, remember, R2-T2 was riding piggyback on top of the X-Wing. And so, okay, if y'all hear my dog barking, I am so sorry. But he is a big dog, and he loves to bark at anybody that walks outside. And so he he's barking in the other room, but he has a massive bark. So just to let you know, if you hear him barking, it's okay. It's just my little Hank. So then this leads to the climax. We finished with that particular section, and everything is negative. It's all bad. R2-D2 is destroyed. That's what I was going to tell you. At least it looks like he's been destroyed. So that leads to our, our climax, the ultimate high point, the most exciting part of the movie or of the novel. In Star Wars, Han Solo arrives back on the scene. Ta-da! Just as the Death Star is preparing to fight on the Rebel base, just as Vader has locked on to Luke's X-Wing to destroy it. Han Solo shoots down one of Vader's wingmen, and then he hits the other one in such a way that it connects with Vader's fighter, causes it to spin totally out of control and out into the universe. Luke releases his shot using the Force, and it goes in perfectly. The Death Star explodes just as the leaders push the button to fire on the Rebel base. So ultimate defeat ends up becoming ultimate victory. It's the most exciting part. It is our climax. Um, in The Princess Bride, it doesn't have quite the excitement, but it's still there. Um, Wesley basically talks his way out of danger. Since he can't get up and he can't use the sword, he basically laughs about it and says, what do you think? I'm stuck here. I'm paralyzed here. And the prince buys it. The prince gives up. He sits in a chair until Buttercup can tie him up. It's crazy, but it is what happened. So, again, the ultimate defeat turns into ultimate victory. And in Beauty and the Beast, this has kind of a sad climax. Bell tries to help the beast, but he is dead. The final petal falls. The servants all become permanent inanimate objects. And in the in the uh the live movie, um it, not the cartoon but in the live movie, I just is heartbreaking to see all these pieces like Mrs. Potts and Chip. Chip almost smashes against the cement, but 
the uh, servant, not servant, the footman, uh, the coat rack, catches him and puts him on the tray with Mrs. Potts, just as the coat rack becomes inanimate as well. Um, all of them become inanimate objects. Beast is dead, and Belle is leaning over him, just sobbing. Uh, about that time, Agatha, who is the beggar woman, uh, she arrives just as the beast dies, and she hears Belle declare her love for uh, It's not the battle scene, but it is still everything has uh, been defeated, ultimate defeat, but now there is hope because she hears Belle declare her love for Beast, and that's what needed to break the spell. So all this leads to the falling action. The denouement, uh, D-E-N-O-U-M-E-N-T, that every time I see that word, it throws me, but it is pronounced denouement. It is a French word meaning to unknot or to untie. Uh, this is the section that gives a reaction to what just happened. So if your book is a romance, for instance, it will likely encompass a scene for each of the main characters and how they react to this most exciting part. Now, that doesn't mean that the reader has to read through the next scene twice, one from one point of view and one from the other point of view, the same moments in each scene. What it means is um, each main character will have some reaction scene to what has happened but it can't be the same exact events but they'll have a reaction of their own sometimes this can be accomplished through a reflection um, sometimes even later in my novel counterpoint the final scene and no i'm not giving away any spoilers i promise but the final scene is lived through the hero's head the heroine doesn't react to the scene until a little bit later thinking back on it this is the falling action now, it can be nothing more like it is in The Princess Bride. In The Princess Bride, Fezzik arrives with the horses. The battle is over, and their escape is sure. That's seriously, that is the falling action. That's all that needs to be done. It's, it's the, sure, uh, the sure victory. Uh, same thing for Star Wars. The battle has ended. The rebel base is celebrating when Luke arrives. Han and Leah catch up to Luke when he lands. Leah shows the romance sparks between her and Han when she states that she knew there was more to Han Solo than just money. And then there's a slight poignant moment when the burned out remains of R2-D2 are lifted from Luke's X-Wing. R2-D2, of course, is only a computer, but he's become part of their team and they're they're really sad because they think that he is destroyed. Um, it's a little different for Beauty and the Beast. Agatha reveals that she is the enchantress who has placed the curse on the castle in the first place. She lifts Beast up with her magic, and not only does she heal him, she makes him a man again. The inanimate objects reanimate and become servants again, and the villagers show up at the castle this time remembering that there is a castle there and that their loved ones actually are there, live there. Story over. Ta-da, last page, the end. Well, not quite. 
okay, yes, all the stories are over, but to be honest, few movies and even fewer books are going to end right at the release of the climax. Think about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, my gosh. That ending went on and on. Okay, no, let me put this more succinctly. Those endings went on and on because I swear there had to be about 10 of them. After that final battle, it just went. There was an ending after an ending after an ending after an ending. Usually a book or a movie isn't going to say the end right at the end of the climax. Now, sometimes they will. Not usually, especially not in today's genre writing. There isn't always an epilogue, but there does need to be a final curtain. All of these movies, they're actual epilogues. Um, In Beauty and the Beast, the prince and Belle have married, or at least you assume they have, because they've changed clothes, and now he calls her princess, and she calls him my prince, and things like that. There's a huge ball at the castle, and all the villagers are reunited with their loved ones and they're dancing with their significant others. And so, it, I mean, it, that is the epilogue and the promise of a happily ever after. In Star Wars, it's a ceremony and it's honoring Luke and Han and Chewbacca. And then as we watch the ceremony, we also see that R2-D2 has been fixed. And that's all it is. There's almost no talking. I don't think there is any talking. Um, It's just music and the honoring of uh, particularly Luke and Han, but Chewbacca's there as well. And then in The Princess Bride, it's this romantic scene with the sunset in the background. True love conquers all. All is right in the world. And then it goes back to um, the grandfather and his son, and his son actually liked the story. I mean, it's a happy ending. How could you help liking a happy ending? It's doubly happy, however, because we've actually completed our novel skeleton. We, I mean, you and I together have actually gone through and completed this novel skeleton, these nine parts, these nine major bones. But I want to go through all the bones again just to make sure you didn't miss them, just really quickly. I'm not going to go through all of the different sections, just the bones, because I don't want you to miss any of them. So bone one is that initiation. You have to set the story by introducing the main characters. You have to tell me about their goals, their fears, and this is where you plant the seed of the lie that they believe. Um, You also have to paint the setting through short descriptions, revealing a little at a time. Don't do an info dump. I can't tell you how many books that I have seen proposed that seriously do info, info bumps, dumps, whole paragraphs, whole pages, whole sections of just description. That was wonderful uh, back in the day. I remember in the 70s. Oh, I hate to even say I remember the 70s, but I do. I remember in the 70s in like a fifth grade reading class, or maybe it was a sixth grade reading class, and we were reading a short story, and a whole huge section of it was just description. That was fine back then. It is not fine in genre writing today. You need to put it in a little bit at a time. And so at the end of bone number one, the main character has to take a step through a doorway of no return. 
he or she or both of them have to choose to go on this journey or tackle this problem. If there's no doorway, there's no clear plot. Um, so this is where the doorway needs to be. This can't be moved somewhere else. The doorway has to be right there at the end of bone number one or no, it really does have to be at the end of bone number one. Then in bone number two, there's a plan. And the plan is exactly what they what it what it says it is. It's what they're planning to do to complete the task, to complete the journey, to complete fixing the problem. Um, then bone number three is a minor crisis where their plan falls apart. It, it's just been made, it's been attempted, and it is a failure. This bone will have your some story twists, at least one story twist. It will have an introduction of subplots. Um, it could have as many as two story twists. It won't usually have more than one subplot in this particular bone. The main characters um, in this bone realize that the task isn't nearly as cut and dried as they first believed. Their failure ends up setting up um, the fourth bone. And the fourth bone ends up being a time of reflection. Now that bone does not mean that that title does not mean that this bone is quiet and serene and easy and you know dee 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 no on the contrary there are complications in this bone. There are twists that drive the main character to do a brave step. Um, they, it exposes a virtue or a flaw in one of the main characters. It sets up a false apex, like the story could be over, but it isn't. That's where that reflection time comes in at the end of this fourth bone. Um, for instance, when I was watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy with my girls, um, I saw it in all three of those movies. If you're familiar with these movies, this is when the army has just conquered a few minor issues, but before they go out again through actually a second door of no of no return before they go out to battle again that's where this reflection bone is it 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 is their time of ah, okay let's go again and they it was in it was this false apex this false ending as it were were in all three of those movies in fact um, I have to tell you, I was actually watching these movies with Bible studies. I know, I know it's crazy. There are high school and college Bible studies. And yes, we got an awful lot of focused scripture study uh, based on these movies. Um, but in all three of these movies are so stinking long that I had to cut them in half. And this is where we ended each one of them at the end of bone four, as they were setting up to go into uh, their, their next downhill slide into the real part of the battle. It sets up um, bone number five and bone number five, uh, the, the false apex requires kind of a reset and that's what bone number five is. It's a change of plans. It's a refocus. Sometimes this is a detour. Um, sometimes it's just a re-energizing to go forth once again. And I think it was in both of these. Uh, it was both a detour and a re-energizing um, between these 
this trilogy, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think the first one was a a, a reset, a detour, uh, but the other two were really kind of a re-energizing. This section is going to end with a minor victory, a little bitty upswing that gives the false security that everything really will be okay because it's not going to be okay. It's it's just the thing we need to dash all hope again. Um, that's what we were talking about. Bone six is the calamity bone. I think I called it bone seven earlier, and I didn't mean to. I'm so sorry. It is bone six, and it's the calamity bone. The main characters realize what a problem they are in and the slim chances that they will have to succeed. The direness of their situation, beginning of this bone, and they just push through it. Then toward the end of the bone, there is this little bitty tiny upswing, a smidgen of hope like we talked about at the beginning um, that, that brings us to tonight's bones. Number seven is the pit of despair. The characters fail miserably. All is lost. And yet, there's this tiny seed of hope implanted, a tiny chance of success at the end of bone number seven, the pit of despair, that leads us into bone number eight, our storming the castle bone. It's also called the final battle. It's also considered the apex or the climax. At the worst possible moment, victory actually comes. Or... As in, a, as in a tragedy, uh, like, like Romeo and Juliet, at the moment when success is assured, tragedy comes. Defeat actually comes. Um, this bone ends with some falling action, the reaction to the climax of the story, and then you have the final curtain. It's a very short bone. And I think of it as a, I don't know, an earlobe or something like that. But it's a very short bone. Maybe it's a finger bone, just to put the cherry on top of the Sunday. But it is where the characters can bask in their glory of a finished story. And there you have it. A completed novel in just nine steps, or bones, as it were. And as you get to know the bones, you'll start seeing them more and more. Like I've said before, the sections can be reconfigured within each bone. They can even be skipped altogether for shorter stories. But the bones are always going to be there. Look for them the next time you read a book or watch a movie. By all means, use them when you're writing your novel. The novel skeleton needs to be there for a good foundation for your story. But let me tell you a little about what's going on at Write Integrity Press this month. Okay. Let me tell you because right now, today, Glimpses of the Savior, it's a second edition of this book. It's the expanded version. Um, it is on sale for only 99 cents today. Harriet Michael and Shirley Crowder originally crafted 30 devotions, but they've added a bunch. And so we actually now have 50 devotions for all of the holidays of November and December to try and help and encourage you and help you strengthen peace and strengthen joy. Um, the holidays can be such a difficult time, whether it's from the stress of all the things that you have to do or from the 
the sadness of missing people, um, these devotions can really encourage. I, I loved working on this book with Harriet and Shirley. Um, and it is only, like I said, it's only 99 cents today. Harriet and Shirley are, are actually um, lifetime friends. They were born across the street from each other in Nairobi, Kenya. At least I think it was Nairobi, Kenya, or in that area. Um, and... You know, now that I think about it, I think I've got my places mixed up. All I know is they were missionaries in Africa, <laughs> and they grew up as missionary kids and best friends living right across the, the the dirt road from each other. I was about to say the street, but it wasn't a street. It's was just a dirt road. Um, and they are now, they co-write. They don't live anywhere near them, but now they near each other, but they co-write uh, devotional books, and they have done a a nice big program called the prayer project that has several different sections to it. It had um, Harriet's Bible study prayer. It's not about you. And Shirley followed that up by creating a Bible study guide for that particular book. And then the two of them put together um, glimpses of prayer for uh, another devotional um, with that could be done at any time, but it was glimpses of prayer specifically to, to refocus on prayer. And they have another book coming out in that prayer project in a couple of months that is uh, Prayer Warrior Confessions. And this one, they actually, they did write quite a bit of it, but they actually compiled it. They're the compilers more than anything else because it has got um, confessions from prayer warriors from all walks of life and from all countries. It is such a well-written book and so exciting to read the different stories of these prayer warriors. Um, But today, their book is, like I said, called Glimpses of the Savior, and you can find it on Amazon. The e-book, the Kindle e-book, is only 99 cents. So I hope you will consider blessing our authors today and enjoying an incredible book as you go through the holiday season that's coming up. Um, And then I also have one other thing that I really need to tell you. I'm so excited about. Several of our Write Integrity Press authors have gotten together and created a special giveaway for our readers. Last September, we we did this for the first time, and we called it our We Love Our Readers Sweepstakes. Well, September has just become our month to show you just how much we love you, because this is, again, our We Love Our Readers Sweepstakes, only this is the 2018 version. So we're giving away a Kindle Fire and a $100 gift card, Amazon gift card. Um, We have 13 authors involved in this giveaway, including Faye, by the way. Um, We hope you will enter. It's going to start on Monday, and we hope that you'll uh, support all these amazing authors by clicking on their links for bonus entries. This is happening during the rest of September. It's going to start on September 10th, and go through to the 29th, and the drawing will be held on September 30th. So, by the way, sharing about the sweepstakes, I think, also gives you more entries. i got to figure that one out and make sure that one's right. So find out more about it at, um, at our website. That's www.writeintegrity.com. And remember that write is W-R-I-T-E, as in writing. So www.writeintegrity.com, right there on the front page is a link to the sweepstakes. And here in another week, 
we'll have it only on the front page. So you'll be able to see it right at the very top when the sweepstakes actually starts. But there's a link to the sweepstakes that gives you the information that we have so far, and that link will be live. I think I'm starting it Sunday. In fact, yes, I'm sure I'm starting it Sunday, but we're not advertising it till Monday. So you could actually get an early entry by jumping on it on Sunday. There you go. And you can also enter every single day for one entry every day. Now, I will tell you that following the signing up for newsletter lists and following blogs and things like that nets you three extra entries for every one that you do. But you can't do those every day. You can only do those once. Um, but you can enter every day. So if you jump on it early, you get to enter every single day and get more entries. And it's going to be worth it. It's about $150 uh, in gifts for you guys. So, okay, also, don't forget to drop us a line if you have any questions or comments about our show. Faye and I will answer your questions online. You can either use the contact form at our website, which is, like I said, www.rightintegrity.com. There's a contact us form at the back um, of the website on the on the about us area and you can use that or you can write to us directly and our direct email is downpublishinglane at gmail.com and remember that lane is my middle name l-a-i-n-e there's an i in it so um it's down publishing lane i know i spell it weird but just the way my mommy did it. I didn't do it to myself. All right. Y'all don't want to miss next month's publishing lane. I do not have any idea what we're going to be talking about. I'm thinking we might be talking about uh, chatting with that editor. You know, we're getting to the part where in September we have all kinds of conferences that start. And so I'm thinking we're going to talk about conferencing, um, chatting with editors, making good impressions, what to bring to a conference. You know what? I'm making a decision. That is what we're talking about in September. You want to find out how to make the most of your conference? You need to come back in September and talk with Faye and I because we're – We've been to so many different conferences, and we'll be able to tell you what's been impressing and what's not been impress impressive. So impressive, not impressing. I'll get it straight. Okay. We are a little early tonight, but without being able to chitter-chat between me and Faye, I'm impressed that we got through it as quickly as we did. So I am going to sign off for um, Down Publishing Lane, and I look forward to hearing from you. Like I said, drop me a line or talking with you again October 2nd at 7 p.m. Central, and I hope to catch all of you then. Talk to you soon. This has been Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. If you'd like to learn more about Margie and her publishing company, visit writeintegrity.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-I-N-T-E-G-R-I-T-Y dot com.